Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be back in your presence today. Um, and it's a good thing that, a providential thing, I guess, that I am preaching about healing as one of the patterns of Jesus because, you know, standing up here, you can see everyone, and like a lot of you are looking green. So, and Susan said that would be about how it would go over, so. Um, and I, I do apologize for the unfortunate wardrobe choice uh, today. I don't, I don't have like a green sweater, but uh, I, am, I am not for the other team, so anyway. Um, so in all seriousness, uh, the, the sermon series has been the, the patterns of Jesus. How does Jesus work uh, typically in order to encourage us uh, to believe what he says in, uh, in his ministry and, and to believe what God's word says about him. And one of the things that he does in scripture and uh, continuing all the way up to the present day is he heals. And so we're going to be talking uh, from the story about the, the woman who suffered uh, with a bleeding condition. We're going to be talking about what it looks like for, uh, for us to be people who look to Jesus for healing and receive his healing. And all that said, if, if you have a paper Bible or a Bible on your device and you're looking at it right now, and, and you look right before the, the passage uh, that Clayton read a moment ago, you, you would think you would see a heading that said something like, Jesus heals the bleeding woman, but you won't find it. And those headings aren't part of the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're put there by the, the publishers of the Bible to introduce a new topic or a new story. And, and the reason you don't see a heading there just for the healing of the bleeding woman is because the, the story that we're looking at today is, is in the middle of a bigger story. And this is actually the only uh, healing miracle, or the only miracle, that is connected directly with another miracle in Scripture. And, and so just because of time, we don't have... Uh, the ability to look at both stories today. The other story is about a man named Jairus uh, and his daughter who also needed healing. Um, but I would encourage you to, to go back and start reading at verse 21, uh, maybe after you get home today, and, and just read to the end of the chapter and look how these two stories are intertwined. Look at the, the commonalities, look at the themes that are shared between those two stories. Let me also say that the issue of healing is something that I know uh, can be difficult uh, to talk about because it's one that is a, a difficult topic for many of us to, to grapple with. Many of us have experienced a need for healing in our own lives, and sometimes that healing is slow to come or incomplete or it doesn't come at all. And the topic of healing is one that's difficult for me to, to preach about as well, uh, many of you who know me know that four years ago I was diagnosed with a couple of autoimmune conditions that have radically changed my life and have radically changed uh, the way that I interact with other people and the way that I work. And they've led to a lot of suffering. Uh, and there are no easy answers and healing uh, has not come yet. And so all of that to say, as, as we talk about healing today, please know that there is no guarantee that we are going to be healed in this life. 
although healing does come. There's no guarantee that we'll be healed in this life, but healing will come. And so we're going to look at two aspects of Jesus' healing today. The first is Jesus heals, and the second is Jesus doesn't always heal in the ways we expect. So the first point, Jesus heals. I mentioned a moment ago that I've been diagnosed with two autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis and a, a pretty rare condition called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. And if you're unfamiliar with what an autoimmune disease does, your, your immune system actually winds up attacking your healthy cells in your own body. Uh, your, your immune system is supposed to protect your body from pathogens, from viruses, from bacteria, from other stuff that wants to come in and do bad stuff to your body. But when you have an autoimmune disease, your body attacks itself. And a lot of people have autoimmune diseases of different types, uh, but really doctors and science don't know that much about them. And so if you're someone who has an autoimmune disease or knows someone who has an autoimmune disease, you're probably like me, and uh, what, what you do is you spend a lot of time online trying to find out information about what to do because no one seems to know what to do. You, you go to different uh, websites that talk about autoimmune diseases. You, you look at different videos of people uh, who have had experiences with these kinds of diseases. You, you try to find out what's worked for them, what hasn't worked for them, what medicines uh, to, to recommend to your doctors, what doctors to look up, what, what doctors have a good record uh, of working with people with these particular kinds of diseases. You spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to be healed. Uh, and that's been my experience as well. And, and that's the experience of the woman in today's passage. She's been suffering from some sort of chronic bleeding disorder, which we assume was related in some way to her reproductive system. And we don't know what her underlying condition was, but in all likelihood, it was something that today in the 21st century could be probably relatively easy, re easily rather resolved. Uh, by modern medicine. But she didn't live in the 21st century. She lived in the first century. And so she goes to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor for 12 years. And she spends everything that she has. And the only thing that happens, we're told, is that she gets worse. Verse 26 tells us that she suffered much under many doctors and had spent all she had. And so she must have felt pretty hopeless. Then as verse 27 tells us, she hears about Jesus. And after being desperate, after suffering for 12 years, she goes to see him because maybe this is her last hope. Maybe, maybe Jesus is able to heal her. Let's take a moment and imagine what this woman's life would have been like up to this point. And I'll let you know, too, um, have any of you watched The Chosen? Okay. So if, if you've not watched it, it's a, it's a kind of a fictional dramatization of the Gospels. And uh, it's, it's really, really a good series. You can find it online. You can watch it for free. Um, 
in the current season, season three, episode five, there is a really good dramatization of what this woman's experience uh, encountering Jesus might have been like. Uh, but back, back to kind of imagining what her life would have been like up to this point. So the, the, the condition that this woman was struggling with was more than an inconvenience. It, it was more than something that required her to kind of shuffle her, her schedule every day. She's been suffering for 12 years which is probably the majority of her adult life. The, the Jewish ceremonial laws, which are laid out in Leviticus 15, and which, again, we don't have time to go into today, but these are the ceremonial laws which would have bound this woman. They, they said that if a woman is bleeding for as long as she bleeds, she's ceremonially unclean. And that means that she can't worship in the temple and she can't have a sacrifice offered to forgive her sins. It means that she can't get married. It means that uh, she can't, uh, if she were married rather, her husband couldn't touch her because if he did, then he would inherit uh, her uncleanness. And if she were married, her illness would have been grounds for her husband to divorce her because she couldn't have children. She can't go out in public without telling people that she's unclean, kind of like what you, what you think of when you, you perceive someone with leprosy. And she probably would have been viewed by everyone around her as being under God's wrath. She, she would have felt isolated and ashamed. Suffice it to say that for 12 years, this woman has suffered profoundly. She suffered uh, physically and emotionally and relationally and spiritually and financially. And she's desperate. Jesus is her last hope for physical healing, for restoration to God and to other people, and for a future. This woman is as good as dead if Jesus can't heal her. And so what does she do? What does she do? In verse 27, we read that she approaches Jesus from behind in the crowd, just wanting to touch the tip of his clothing. And she comes up behind him because she just wanted to be healed. She didn't want anything else. She just wanted this season of her life to be over and done with. She wanted to start clean. She came up behind Jesus because she was probably ashamed of her condition. And she felt like she was beyond hope. And she wanted to touch Jesus' clothing because she thought that would be the least conspicuous thing that she could do in order to get what she wanted. She just wanted to get in and get out unnoticed. She didn't want to have to reveal her uncleanness and shame to anyone around. And maybe, just maybe, she felt so shunned by everyone else in the religious community that she wasn't entirely certain that Jesus wanted to help her either. Jesus was a rabbi. He was clean. Why would he want to have anything to do with this woman who had been rejected by God, rejected by the community? Have you ever, have you ever rather, felt like that uh, in coming to Jesus? Whether it was a need for, for physical healing or for emotional healing or spiritual healing, have you ever felt like this woman did? That you needed Jesus, but you just wanted to get in and get out without ever having to talk to him? 
maybe you came to Jesus reluctantly or quietly because you weren't really sure that he wanted to listen to you or help you. Maybe like this woman, you felt well beyond hope. Based on the story, how do you think Jesus sees you and your struggle, whatever it might happen to be? Is he more willing to help than you're willing to hope? Well, this woman's plan paid off. The woman touched Jesus' clothing, and the parallel account of the story in Luke chapter 8 tells us that she just touched the fringe of his garment, which was probably the tassel on his prayer shawl, which most uh, Jewish men wore. And immediately and simultaneously, verse 29 tells us her symptoms stopped, and she understood in her mind that she had been healed of her disease. She knew in an instant that she was better. The Lord not only healed her body, but he gave her the assurance in her mind and her heart that that healing was true and complete. Verses 30 to 32 are a momentary look away from the woman back to Jesus and to the disciples. And we seem to see Jesus confused in verses 30 to 32 as to what happened. Verse 30 says that Jesus had perceived that power had gone out from him, and he immediately turns around and asks, who touched my garments? But is he really confused? I don't think he is, because we never see him experience confusion anyplace else in the Gospels. If anything, we see Jesus demonstrate time and time again that he knows full well what's going on in other people's minds and hearts. So I don't think he was confused. I think what's going on here is for the benefit of the woman and for all those around her. And why? It's because Jesus uses, the, uses this moment, rather, to make her healing complete. Sure, the woman had already been healed of the physical symptoms of her disease, but now Jesus heals her of the social and relational and spiritual symptoms of her disease. He makes her healing complete. Complete. First, in verses 30 to 32, Jesus invites the woman to come into the open and reveal herself as the one who touched him. She does that, and in verse 33, we read that she told him the whole truth, which means her entire story of suffering with this disease, her entire story of being hopeless, her entire story of being ignored and shunned by the people around her and feeling cut off from God. She told the whole truth about her uncleanness, about her shame, about her hopelessness. This is remarkable because although Jesus is her primary audience, remember the, the context, remember the setting. They're in the midst of this huge crowd of people who have thronged Jesus since he arrived uh, back on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. She has dozens, if not hundreds, of other people listening to the testimony of what she's been through. Everyone within earshot now knows that this woman, whom they have been taught to avoid for the last 12 years, is now clean. And she has been restored to the community of believers and to the community itself. She is no longer to be regarded as an outcast. 
That's her social healing. But then in verse 34, Jesus addresses the relational and spiritual symptoms of her disease in one statement. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He calls her daughter. He names her daughter. And in doing so, he makes it clear that she really is part of God's family and entitled to all of the benefits of being in the covenant family of God. By implication, Jesus also restores this woman to community with others because if she's indeed a daughter, then in the family of God's covenant people, she has mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, people to care for her and to care about. She's no longer alone. That's her relational healing. But Jesus also says, your faith has made you well. And here Jesus commends the woman for her faith and tells her that it wasn't misplaced. God saw her in her suffering and rewarded her faith with the healing and restoration that she's longed for. And that's her spiritual healing. Being told, being convinced that there is no longer any separation between this woman and the Lord. My friends, a lot of times when we suffer various illnesses, various um, other issues in our lives which we feel separate us from the Lord and from other people, the Lord wants to use our healing as an opportunity to not only encourage us, but to encourage the people around us. And I don't think we should lose the, 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 the notion that this woman's healing was public. Her, her illness was very public. And so her healing is public. The Lord uses her healing to encourage all of the people around her, all of the people who knew her and, and saw what the Lord had done for her. And in doing that, they, they don't only gain the knowledge that this woman is now restored into community, they gain the knowledge that Jesus is able to heal. And one of the ways in which this story is, is intertwined with the, the, the story that bookends it, the story of Jairus and his daughter, is that Jairus has come to Jesus and said, Jesus, come, my, my, my little daughter is dying. You need to hurry up and come to my house and lay your hands on her so that she'll live. And, spoiler alert, while Jesus has stopped to take care of this woman with the, uh, the bleeding disorder, Jairus' daughter dies. That, that delay um, took place during the end of her life. And so, for Jairus himself to be a witness to Jesus healing this woman must have given him some faith to believe that Jesus could not only heal his daughter, but even raise her from the dead. I should say, too, that if you are suffering with a physical or an emotional or a mental or... Um, any, any kind of 
disease or disorder. Your, your struggle isn't just about you. Your struggle involves all the people around you, and the way in which the Lord is going to work out healing in your life is necessarily going to impact those people as well. The, 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 the fact that you are struggling and turning to the Lord for healing is a story being written for others to observe in order that they would know who Jesus is and that they would know the love and the power of God. Second point. Jesus doesn't always heal us in the ways that we expect. You know, there are roughly 37 of Jesus' miracles recorded in the four Gospels. Uh, and that's a rough number because sometimes individual miracles aren't listed. It just says that Jesus healed many people. But there are 37 incidents recorded of, of Jesus uh, doing miraculous work uh, in the four Gospels. And about six out of ten of those miraculous works are, are in some way related to healing. And so we know that uh, Jesus healed people with all kinds of physical diseases, injuries, psychological diseases, disabilities. And so we would naturally conclude that physical healing is something that's really important to Jesus. And that would be a correct assumption. Scripture tells us that Jesus came to heal all of our diseases. Healing is very important to Jesus. And in a sense, healing is at the core of what Jesus came to accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection. He says that I am coming to make all things new. But that doesn't mean that every person is healed in the same way or that every person even experiences physical healing in this life. But I, I will tell you this, this is God's promise to all who trust in him. That if you suffer physically, if you suffer emotionally, if you suffer mentally, if you suffer psychologically, and you do not receive healing in this life, healing will still come. What we see around us is not the end of the story. This, this is yet just, just the beginning of our eternal life. You and I, if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will never cease to live. The Bible says that if we experience physical death, we will go to sleep for a while. But you're already living eternal life. And that healing will come. All that said, here are four things that we can take away as we ponder God's care for us as we struggle with suffering. One, God is intimately involved with the struggles that you and I face. David tells us in Psalm 139, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven together in the depths of the earth. There's nothing that we encounter that's apart from God's knowledge. There's no circumstance we encounter that ever takes him by surprise. There's no illness, no disease, no injury, no suffering that we face that will ever shock or surprise God. And if the Lord is the one who intricately weaves together every cell and bone and muscle and nerve fiber in our bodies, 
he is the one who is actively in control of them every day of our lives. So he is intimately involved with us. Two, God loves us with an everlasting love even while we suffer. Our suffering is never a sign of God's punishment. He tells us that he is a faithful and steadfast father to us in all circumstances, even when we are not faithful and steadfast in our relationship with him. A seminary professor of mine uh, once gave a picture of God's relationship with us. We are we're like little children sitting on our father's knee. And he holds us tight in his embrace. And whether we squirm to, to escape his embrace or turn around and slap him or speak rudely to him or, or ignore him completely, he holds us in the safety of his embrace and loves us the same. He never tires of us. He never drops us from his lap. He never pushes us down because he grows weary. He's faithful. He is faithful. And his love is constant. And while there are times that the suffering we experience is a direct result of our sin, God never stops loving us, and he never uses illnesses or injury to punish us for our sin. It's the second thing to remember. The third is that God sometimes allows illness and suffering for a reason. And at a very macro level, that reason is to grow our faith or the faith of those around us. And I should say, the, the reason God permits illness and suffering is rarely knowable while we're in the midst of it. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that we suffer in part to strengthen our own faith in God and that others would see him at work in us. He says that even in the midst of our suffering, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. If you trust in Jesus... Suffering is never wasted. We often see Christ break through in personal and glorious ways that we never could have imagined otherwise. And fourth and last, and we'll end with this, this is not our home. We, we feel it is because it's, it's the only thing we've ever known. But God tells us in his word that we are being prepared in this life to spend an eternity with him. He is changing our hearts and our minds through the experiences that, that we uh, suffer on this earth so that we would think and act more like his son, Jesus, and so that we would understand his love for us more and more. And this is a hard truth. Because we're taught to value supremely everything around us. We're, we're taught to make this place where we live right now as stable as possible. And, and that's not a bad thing. But it can't be our ultimate thing. Illness sometimes ends in death. 
just as, as it did for Jairus' daughter. But one thing that God makes clear to us through his word is that we're not made for this fallen world, but for everlasting union with him and his kingdom. And God tells us this in Revelation 21, three, uh, verses 3 and 4, about what it's like to be with him in his kingdom. This is a familiar verse, but I encourage you to just close your eyes as I read it. And just imagine what it would be like to experience this. It's a hard thing to do because we've never experienced anything like it. But this is what it's like to be with God in his kingdom. It says God himself will be with them, will be with us. 